Clue, understanding the mysteries of grace. This is a sermon series that is going to take us through Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. If you were here over the last three weeks, it's a sequel to the previous sermon series where we talked through Ephesians chapter number one. Now, if you did not bring a Bible with you today, that's okay. Most of our scripture is gonna be on the screen. You'll be able to follow along. Do you like a good mystery? Do you like a, a mystery novel, a mystery story, a mystery television show, a mystery movie? I, I do. I, I followed mysteries for many, many years. In fact, uh, when Heather and I were first married, we would read Agatha Christie novels together. Uh, how many of you have ever read an Agatha Christie novel? I, I enjoy them. It, the very first one, I think, was Murder on the Orient Express. And she would always try to guess who'd done it and who, with what they did it with and how they did it and why they did it and all of the things about doing it. And that's what she would, we'd read those together. Then she moved on to Arthur Conan Doyle and I moved on to Edgar Allan Poe and now we watch cop shows. <laughs> Anybody here watch cop shows? How many of you ever watch a cop show with somebody who can figure out what happened before you do? This is what happens with Heather and I, so we don't do it anymore. I, I stopped because we would start a couple years ago, I don't know how many years ago, probably 10 years ago, and all cop shows are relatively the same. You have one character who is a kooky detective who understands everything before everybody else does. And this kooky detective comes in and he sees everything a different way than everybody else sees it, and he begins to figure out all of the things. Well, my wife thinks that she is that detective. And 10 minutes into the show, she'll be like, that's the guy. And I'll be like, what, what, what guy? She's like, that's the guy, and he did it, and this is why he did it. So now we fight quite a bit about these things. How many of you are the person who figures it out before everybody else? Is that you? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are like me? You're halfway through the season, you're like, what show is this again? I don't remember. <laughs> like, who is that guy? Why is he here? I thought he was on another show, right? You get really confused? Okay, so there are gonna be two types of people in the midst of this sermon series. The first kind of person is gonna be like, I know where you're going with this. All right, fantastic. You're the smartest among us. You are the person who can figure out the clues before anyone else. And then there's some of us that are gonna allow the mystery to unveil itself one moment at a time. That's what we're studying this next four weeks. Over these next four weeks, I'm gonna be sharing with you from Ephesians chapter two and three, Four specific clues that are going to help you understand the mystery of grace like, like never before. And the beginning of this sermon series begins with this clue, a sermon entitled, The Chair. The chair is the very first visual, the very first clue that I need you to grasp to truly understand what the Bible refers to as the mystery of the gospel or the mystery of the kingdom or the mystery of grace. This chair will be lodged in your mind. This chair is something you're not going to forget anytime soon. The illustrations, the visual aids of the next four weeks will help you, not only when you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, not only when you explain all about the mystery of grace to your children and grandchildren, but these four visual aids will help remind you yourself the essence and base of your faith itself. So I gotta tell you, if there were ever a week to miss church, it's not today or the next three weeks. Because as we study these next four weeks and these four clues, there will be an understanding of God's mystery like never before. 
So let's go ahead and get into it. Number one, as we study the chair, we turn to Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, and I want us to see this main proposition for today's sermon, the big thought for today's talk. Number one, here it is, the big thought for today's sermon, I was a dead man, but God saved me when I put my faith in Christ. I was a dead man, but God saved me when I put my faith in Christ. Can you say this together with me? Let's go ahead and say it together. If you're a woman, you can say woman if you'd prefer, all right? So let's say it together. I was a dead man. No, no, whoa, there's like three of us. Let's say the whole thing together. You say, but we're the 8.30 service. I know. I know you are, but I know, I believe in you, you see? I believe in you, you can do this. Let's say it out loud. I was a dead man, but God saved me when I put my faith in Christ. Say it again, say it again. I was a dead man, but God saved me when I put my faith in Christ. One more time, one more time. I was a dead man, but God saved me when I put my faith in Christ. Okay, let's go ahead and walk through this entire statement. In reality, you're going to see this. The entirety of verse 1 through 10 of chapter 2 that we're studying is summarized with this one statement. In fact, we boiled it down to its very essence. We're about to study over the next 30 minutes 10 verses from the Bible that are summarized and boiled down to this essential thought, I was a dead man, but God saved me. When I put my faith in Christ, you say, I was a dead man. That sounds like a very strange thing to say. Let's go in and see it. Point number one, I was a dead man walking. I was a dead man walking. That's essentially verses one through three. Look at what it says. And you, this is the apostle Paul, remember, speaking. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. A reminder to those who are new to the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he's writing specifically to a church in Ephesus. This is a church that he loved, a church that he spent nearly three years pastoring himself. And he went on to express the gospel to them in this letter we call the book of Ephesians. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he reminds the Christians in Ephesus of this truth. You he made alive. It was God who brought life to you. But it wasn't just physical life. All of us are physically alive here today. If you're not physically alive here today, we need you to let one of the ushers know so they can escort you out of the building, right? You're all physically alive, but you are not spiritually alive until Christ wakes you up. That's what Jesus was referring to when he was speaking to Nicodemus the Pharisee. Jesus said to Nicodemus the Pharisee, he said, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul is reminding us of this truth in verse one, and you, if you're a Christian, were he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, stop it for a moment because some of you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Josh, you said, if I'm a Christian, what if I'm not yet a Christian? Okay, then this is not true for you. It's not true that you were once dead and are now alive you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no spiritual life. You say, but I'm here. Yes, you're physically alive, but you have no spiritual life. You have no relationship with God. You have no ability to connect with God. He is not your God, and we're gonna see that even so. You say, well, that seems offensive. Well, that's because my goal today is not to be non-offensive. My goal is to speak the truth. And according to the scripture, you he made alive, those who are Christians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Who are you, Josh, to tell me who I am? Who are you, Paul, to tell me that I was dead in trespasses and sins? I don't know you. You would say, you don't know me. I don't know you personally, but I do know humanity. I do know mankind. And every man and every woman alive physically does not necessarily mean you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so how the Bible describes your spiritual condition is dead. As a dead man, and then verse 2, as a dead man walking. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you were once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. You were spiritually dead, but you were physically alive. You had no intellect toward God. You had no heart toward God. You had no spirit and soul toward God, but you were physically stumbling around as if you were physically alive, but you had no spiritual life inside of you. This is what the Word of God is saying. According to the course of this world, the same way everybody else walks, you were no different. You say, well, I was an individual, not according to the ways of God. This is why the Bible says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many be on this path toward destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting, and only a few will find this way. This is talking about the spiritually dead who are walking toward eternity in hell versus the spiritually living who have found a way to follow Jesus Christ. Now it goes on in which you once walked according to this, uh, of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is referring to Satan and his demons. It's saying that you not only walked according to the way the rest of the world walked, you were walking after the way of the devil. One of the biggest lies that the, that the world currently believes is that I'm doing my own thing. I'm just doing my own thing. You do your thing and I'll do my thing. Okay, here's, here's, here's the problem. You're not doing your thing and I'm not doing my thing. I'm on the God path, you're on the devil path. You think you're doing your own thing. You're not doing your own thing, you're doing the devil's thing. You're walking according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, the spirit who is convincing those who are disobeying God that following him is somehow living out their independent spirit. Hear me, hear me. You are not living out, if you have rejected God, if you're not a follower of Christ, you are not rejecting God and living out your own independent life. You have rejected God and you are being discipled by Satan. You are following the way of the other. There's not thousands of ways, there are two ways. The way of Christ and the way of the devil. This is what the scripture is stating here. It goes on. And it says in verse three, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our own flesh. We all of us, all Christians, were all in the same boat. We were all doing the same thing, walking according to the course of the rest of the world, walking after the spirit who, who works in the spirit of disobedience. All of us were in the same boat, accord, uh, according to the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. That means this, Christian, if you have been a saved believer in Jesus Christ for so long, one of the great lies that the devil can begin to teach you is that you've always been as awesome as you are. 
Look at great you are. And look at how terrible the world is. Aren't they terrible people out there? And aren't we great people in here? Isn't it amazing how nasty they are? And isn't it amazing how great we are? And that's all lies. It's all baloney from the devil. You and I who now walk with Christ once walked according to the course of this world. Once did exactly the way they were walking. And one of the reasons why so many people reject Christ today is because those who walk the narrow way somehow give off this idea to those who walk the broad way that we are walking the narrow way because of something we did, because of how great we are, because we found the way. And you, you wicked godless people are on the broad way. Nothing can be further from the truth. You were once there just as you are now here. Do you believe it? If it's true for you, you say, Pastor Josh, I gotta tell you, I know by God's grace I'm on the path of righteousness, but the reality is it wasn't too long ago I was on the path of damnation. How many of you that's true for you? Would you say amen? amen. Have you been reminded of that this morning? You see, according to what the scripture says, I was a dead man walking. I was a dead man Walking, say it with me. I was a dead man walking. Notice how bad off you were. You say, well, I wasn't that bad off. <laughs> Another lie that Christians believe. That oh, I mean, wasn't, wasn't that bad. You were, you were really bad off. I mean I, I mean, I had some problems, but ultimately I was pretty good. You were not pretty good. Well, I wasn't as bad. You were bad. <laughs> Christian. This is gonna offend some of you very religious people. Listen, you were so bad off, you had no clue who God was. You said, I think I did, no. You were dead to God. Well, I had some little, no, you had none. This is who you were. You were dead and without hope. Dead and without hope, that's who you were. You didn't need a resuscitation. You needed a resurrection. You needed God to come in and do a miracle for you. You say, well, I was kind of raised, you know, I was raised around, you were raised around nothing. Well, I had some morals passed on from my family. You had nothing passed on from your family. You had nothing. Why is this so important to grasp? It's because oftentimes we put so much weight on the religious upbringing that we had and we give God a little bit of credit for our salvation. God gets all credit for our salvation. Everybody else gets nothing, nothing, nothing. You were dead and without hope. Not only were you dead without hope, you were discipled by Satan. Discipled by Satan. Satan was who you followed. That's what this passage is saying. And you were doomed to be damned. You say, well, if I just didn't turn over a new leaf. No, no new leaves. I wasn't that, no, stop, stop negating how wicked and depraved we were. This all comes into play in a moment. You were a dead man walking. You say, well, I had a lot of good to offer. All right, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Essential to Christian theology is the depravity of man, the sin nature and how bad off we were. Let's say I was going to make an omelet for my, uh, 
for my family, right? Because I'm a good dad, I'm gonna make some omelets, and I wake up in the morning and my beloved children are off to school, and I think, well, I'm not gonna make an omelet for them, I'll just make an omelet for Heather. And I open up the refrigerator, and I notice that there are six eggs, perfect, a six-egg omelet, uh, that's what I'm gonna make, because I'm sure that's not too much, right? A six-egg omelet. But nonetheless, a six-egg omelet is what's in my mind, and I see there are six eggs there, but there are only five in the container. I thought, oh my goodness, there's only five eggs in the container. Oh, there's gotta be another egg somewhere. How many of you have children that just put all sorts of stuff in the refrigerator, and you're constantly just pulling stuff out? And So I thought, well, maybe there's another egg in here somewhere, and I move some stuff around, and way back in the back of the vegetable drawer, there's an egg. And I'm like, there it is, fantastic, the sixth egg. So I pull out all five eggs and I pull out the other one. And as I do, I notice it's slightly cracked and a little soft on one side. And I hold it up and I smell it and it, and it doesn't smell, it doesn't smell good. You know what I mean? It smells, it smells like a rotten egg. But I think to myself, I've got to have a six egg omelet for Heather. She's, a, she's getting up and I want a full six egg. So I break all five of the eggs and I put it in and I look at that fifth, sixth egg and I think to myself, I better not do it. But my, I, I decide to do it anyway. I take the egg and I crack it open and I empty it inside. And as I do, I notice part of it is hard, but the other part is soft and it smells terrible. And it's not really yellow. It's more of like a green. And I, and then I think to myself, it's not a big deal, it's not a huge problem, because what I'll do is I'll stir it all together. And as I stir it all together, the good eggs will eventually help out the bad egg. You know what I mean? Like the good of the good eggs will overcome the bad egg and it'll ultimately be pretty good. And you know, what's Heather gonna know? You know, I mean, is Heather gonna know this anyway? So I just stir it up and I, I, I take the omelet and I, 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 I make it on the, on the stovetop and I put a little cheese in there and I put a little onion in there and a little green pepper and man, it looks good and it smells terrible. It smells absolutely awful and I bring it out and I put it on the, and Heather comes out. I say, Heather, I made you an omelet. She's oh, it's great. She goes to sit down and she smells it and she smells it and she looks at me and says, is something wrong with this omelet? What is the answer to that question? Is something wrong with this omelet? What's the answer? Yes, something is wrong with this omelet. Now, if you're here today and you say, no, there's nothing wrong with this omelet, that's bad. <laughs> if you work in the restaurant industry and say there's nothing wrong with this omelet, we need to talk. You understand? We really, we need to have a conversation. Is there something wrong with the omelet? Yes or no? Yes. Is it rotten? Yes or no? Yes. Is it completely rotten or partially rotten? Yes. It's completely rotten. That's the theology of Christianity. You say, I'm not completely rotten. Your little sin has separated you so far from the righteousness of God, you are in his sight completely and utterly filled with stench, rotten to the core. You say, I don't think that makes me feel good. My goal is not to make you feel good. My goal is to give you a real picture of where you're at and where God is so that you can grasp how good God is that he would reach down and save you. God did not look at the, life, your, the omelet of your life and think, man, I really want that. God saw how rotten you were and said, I love you anyway and I'm gonna save you. Number one, we have to see how bad off we really are. And who are we? Number one, I was a dead man walking. Say it with me. I was a dead man walking. Point number two, point number two, but God saved me. But, 
but God saved me. That's Christianity. Christianity was not, well, I made a few mistakes, but I turned my life around. Also, God was in there somewhere. No, this is Christianity. I was a dead man walking, but God saved me. Look what it says in verses four through seven. But God, who is rich in mercy. Is God rich, yes or no? Yes, he's rich. He has, he has vaults filled with mercy. He has vaults filled with grace. He has vaults filled with forgiveness and kindness. And look at what it says. But God, who is rich in mercy because, he, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God, who is so filled with mercy, our sin deserved punishment in hell. But God is so rich with mercy, he has so much of it, so much of it, he could pour it out on you and on all of mankind. Even while you were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So much, let's walk through it. Look at what it says in verse five. Even when we were dead in trespasses, even though you are walking around like a dead man, trying to find anything that fulfills your lust and your flesh and whatever you can consume for yourself, that was you. And God did not look at you and say, oh, disgusting, it needs to be slaughtered. God looked at you and said, I want to save this and bring it back to life. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He brought new life inside of you because of what Christ did. It says specifically with Christ, meaning the moment Christ raised from the grave, so he raised you in newness of life. When we see people baptized and we say they're down in the water and they come out in newness of life, the same concept is being discussed here. Our new life in Christ is raised up. By grace we're saved. And raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which means this. Not only did your new life begin with Christ, it says that now you are sitting in heavenly places in Christ, in Christ. This is not true for everyone, you see. Only those who are in Christ. Those who are in Adam are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are in Adam still will die and go to hell because they are in their sins. But those who are in Christ, the Bible says he's raised in newness of life and he has sat them together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You say, what does that mean? I'm sitting in Christ in heavenly places. Well, there's several ways to look at it. Let me, let me ask you this right now. How many of you, raise your hand if it's true, it's true of you. Are you sitting in Southern Hills Church, the building? Is that true of you right now? Not a trick question. Uh, are you sitting here right now? Would you raise your hand? How many of you are here? Very good. Some of you are not mentally here. You know, you're thinking about other things. But how many of you are sitting here right now? Raise your hand. How many of you are sitting here? Okay, you're sitting right here. Fantastic. Now, you might be thinking, how could I be sitting here, but also I'm sitting there? It's a great question. Several ways. Number one, you can be sitting here and you can be sitting there in the sense that, first of all, you're sitting there legally. See what do you mean, legally I'm sitting there? It means legally you have a place, you have a seat 
at the table of God. You have a seat in the household of God. You have a seat in heavenly places. The Bible says that after Christ rose from the grave, what happened to him? He visited his disciples and he ascended up into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is his legal place. If you are in Christ, you are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. That is your legal seat. You have a a seat with your name on it. You come to Southern Hills, you'll never see somebody's name on a seat. But when you get to heaven, you have a name on your seat. It's yours, legally. Now grasp this, before you got saved, you had a seat in hell. It was thrown away, and you now are seated in heavenly places. You're there legally. You're not only there legally, you're there you're seated there emotionally. Now, this is going to be helpful to some who really do struggle with this. Emotionally, you're seated in heavenly places. What does that mean? How many of you remember that old song by Tony Bennett? Now you're going to show your age. I left my heart in San Francisco. How many of you remember this song? Okay, all right. 8.30 crowd doing good for this one. Very good, all right. <laughs> I left my heart in San Francisco. You know what he means by that, right? Tony Bennett was in San Francisco, the Bay Area, loved it so much, he took a knife, he chopped his chest open, he pulled his heart out, he went to the the Bay Bridge and he dug a hole and he put it there and now he has to live in New York and he's like, I left my heart. Is that what he means, yes or no? no? He didn't literally leave his heart in San Francisco. It means no matter where he is, no matter where he goes, no matter where he is, all he thinks about is he left San Francisco. So is the case for the person who was a a dead man walking, who has been raised together with Christ. Their heart sits in heaven. This is why you have trouble here. Look, Look at me. This is why you have trouble in this world. You look at this world and you're like, what is wrong with this place? Well, a lot is wrong with this place. But this place has only been what this place has always been. It's always been this way. It always will be this way. This place will never be the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven. The closest it'll ever be is when Jesus Christ himself comes back and establishes a temporary 1,000-year kingdom. And even that won't be as good as the eternal kingdom of heaven. Even then, all you'll be thinking about is this is fine, this is good, this is good, but man, I can't wait until I get there. You're seated emotionally in heavenly places. This is why you look around this world and you say, man, this world is not my home. What's wrong with this place? Look, it's not that there's something wrong with this place, there's something wrong with you. You don't belong here. Now, the only reason God has left you here is because he wants a representative of his kingdom in this place. Verse 10 explains all of that when we get there. We're gonna get there in a moment. But do you understand? You're seated in heavenly places legally. You're seated in heavenly places emotionally. But you're also seated in heavenly places literally. Say, whoa, whoa, this is where I can't follow. Literally, I mean, I'm literally here. Yeah, but you're literally there. You say, no, I'm literally here, but you're literally there. You say, is there two of me? No, 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 don't get sci-fi on me, all right? Relax, all right? Here's how it works. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how we view time in a linear sense? 
that we arrive in a certain place in time and we live a certain time and we see time from a past, a present, and a future perspective, but we also know that God created not only space, God created matter, but God created this thing called time. God here, in the word of God, is speaking from God's perspective. From God's perspective, you are here, but you were also here. You are seated now in heavenly places. So what does this mean? It means that in eternity's perspective, from God's point of view, you are already there. There is this weird mindset that Christians have been taught, and that is this, that, well, if, I, if I'm really good, if I work hard as a Christian, if I'm really a good person, and I obey all the laws of Christianity, and if the priest or the pastor or the rabbi really likes me, then maybe I'll earn a place in heaven. Friend, if you're a believer in Christ, you're already in heaven from God's point of view. This brings a security to the rational uh, analytical mind that few other theolo theologies can. You are already there, which means you cannot not be there. Does this make sense? Boy, I love verse seven, as you can tell, but we must move on. It goes on, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy because, he, he, uh, because of his great love, wherewith he has loved us, even when you were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace are you saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse seven, that in the ages to come, why did God do all of this for us? Great question. Why did God raise us up? Why did God bring us back to life? Why did God make us sit in heavenly places? Here's why. This is so good, verse seven. That in the ages to come, Jesus might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is why he did it. Here's why he did it. This is so cool. I used to think heaven was gonna be boring. I mean, really, I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I would sit in church, and I would think about heaven, and they'd be like, man, I want to go to heaven one day. And I had this idea that heaven was like singing to God, you know, which is cool for like 20 minutes. And it was like prayer meetings, you know, and prayer meetings. Back in the day, we had a church, we'd do every night, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and we'd do a prayer meeting, and, and that's where all of the people would come together, and they'd get on their knees, and they'd fall asleep while somebody prayed, and then they'd wake up the next guy, and they'd pray, Right? And, and, and then the guy would get up and he would talk forever and that was my dad. You know what this is like, right? So I, and I thought, church is great, you know, but like I had the idea that, that heaven was like one eternally long church service. And I'm like, oh, dear God. <laughs> you know, what's the other place I have to offer? You know, I don't know. Like how bad is that gonna be? And, and, and this is, I used to think, how bad is heaven going to be? Like the eternal tedium of just being there. Until I, until I studied the Bible and understood what heaven actually is. Heaven is a reset on humanity. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. It's the opportunity for mankind to actually fulfill our destiny. 
the opportunity for us to truly subdue and understand what it means to have dominion over this planet and what it means to advance the, the name of God throughout the universe. It is exciting, exceedingly thrilling to know what the eternal kingdom of God is actually going to be like. And here the Bible gives us a slight taste of what heaven will be like. It says, in the ages to come, he will show the exceeding riches of his grace and kind. Is, is God rich, yes or no? What is he rich with? Well, he's got a vault over here of mercy, and that vault of mercy never ends, but he's also got a couple of other vaults. He's got a vault called grace and another vault called kindness. Let's just talk about kindness. He's got an eternal vault of kindness, and in eternity to come, he's gonna open that vault, and he's gonna spend the ages to come pouring out his kindness on you. Does that sound like it could be boring? Who is the most creative person you've ever known? Well, I would think God. He's the one who created everything. God is infinitely creative, and he has a vault of infinite kindness that he wants to demonstrate and show on you. I think heaven might be pretty interesting. Imagine and it doesn't just say for the age to come. Notice this, we live in a specific, this is gonna blow some of your minds, we live in a specific time or age. This age will one day go away. There are ages to come in which God will just pour out his kindness on you. What? When you begin to understand the infinite nature of the divine, you begin to understand how good God has been to you. You and I, hear me, you and I are a speck of dirt raised up out of the filth, walking around in deadness, consuming whatever we want for ourselves, hurting whoever we want to get what we want for ourselves. And God looked down, and instead of being repulsed by you, he thought, man, I pity you and I love you and he makes you alive and suddenly you look around and you say, look how great I am, I'm a Christian. And God says, no, you are nothing. You were dead man walking, but God saved you. Which leads us to point number three. I was a dead man walking, but God saved me when I put my full faith in Christ. When I put my full faith in Christ, say it with me. When I put my full faith in Christ. Say it again, say it again. When I put my full faith in Christ, whether or not you know it, you're being taught theology here today. Good Bible doctrine. When I put my faith in Christ, look at what it says in verse eight and nine. For by grace are you saved through faith. By God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, God pouring out his love on you even though you didn't deserve it, God saved you through faith, and that not of yourselves. Your salvation is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You say, well, Pastor Josh, isn't it true, kind of, isn't it a little bit true that I had a little bit to do with my salvation? No. The only thing that is required for salvation is simply to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a what? Some of you know, let's say it out loud. This is a what? This is a what? It's a chair. This is a chair. Now, what if I told you this? I, I, I like this chair. This is a good chair. 
it not only looks nice, but it's a, it's a stable chair. I believe in this chair. How many of you would say, Pastor Josh, I trust you. I believe that you believe in this chair. Would you say amen? You believe that I believe in this chair? Sure. Now, I'm gonna demonstrate my belief in this chair. You tell me, all right? I'm gonna demonstrate I trust this chair. I fully believe that this chair can hold all of my weight. I'm putting my faith in this chair. Now, here we go, here we go. You ready? Okay. I have faith that this chair can hold me up. Am I demonstrating my faith in this chair, yes or no? The moment I'm not touching it, I don't have any faith in this chair. See, if this chair fell apart right now, I'd still be standing. Why? Because most of my weight is still on myself, not on the chair. Do you know how most Christians are? No, I shouldn't say that. Do you know how many religious people are? Many religious people have some faith in God. I mean, they lean upon him every now and then. But the fact is, if God was over there, they're, they're doing okay because they're standing on their own two feet. In fact, we even say things like that. I stand on my own two feet. I pick myself up by my own bootstraps. It really is all about me. Now, I believe in God every now and then. Every now and then I go to church. Every now and then I read my Bible. Every now and then God is important to me. But in reality, I am me and I only need me. This is why many Christians don't put their faith in Christ, truly. And they demonstrate that by not putting their faith in God in the toughest moments. Say, man, I really want to put my faith in Christ for my salvation. I really do. All right, then put your faith in Christ. Okay, tell me, yes or no, am I putting my faith in this chair to hold me? Am I? This is where a lot of Christians are. <laughs> They're kind of doing a squat over the chair, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, 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 here's the problem, Pastor. You can't really see God, you know what I mean? But I know myself, and I know how strong I am. And then all of a sudden, the chair could go away, and you're still sitting exactly the same. This is where a lot of Christians are. How many of you realize I can only hold this pose for a very short amount of time? <laughs> helping. Look, we don't need to pretend to put our faith in Christ. We need to put our faith in Christ, all of our faith in Christ. We need to put our full weight on Christ. See, salvation is not based upon how many good things you've done. It's based upon whether or not you believe what Christ did for you is enough. This is putting my full trust, weight, and faith in this chair. Nothing else is going to hold me if this chair breaks. If this chair breaks, I fall. When it comes to salvation, I have put all of my faith, my weight, and trust in Jesus Christ. He's my only hope. If Christ fails, then I'm damned. That's it. That's all I have to hope on. Some people try to diversify their faith. Well, I mean, 20% of faith in Jesus, 30% good works, 30% Bitcoin, 10% religious denomination, you know. I like to diversify my faith. No, listen, 100% of your faith in Christ for salvation, 100%. By the way, can I just stop and say this? If you're able to put all of your faith in Christ for salvation, doesn't it stand to reason you could put all of your faith in Christ for the problem that you're facing right now? See, I am kind of trusting Jesus, but I'm also trusting what I can do. 
Christ. The just will live by faith, the Bible says. And then verse 10 explains where Christians go with this faith in their life. Look at verse 10 and we'll leave. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. Another way to phrase that is, we are not only those who God has worked on, we are those who work alongside with Christ. Look at the next phrase. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The goal of somebody who is putting their faith in Christ is now to work alongside of Christ to show good works to others. It's not that our good works save us, but from our salvation, we now live for good works for others so we can draw people to Christ. God prepared this beforehand from the, uh, uh, that those two should walk in them. That is, we are in Christ now by faith, and from a place of faith, we now can serve others and do good works. So here's my question. As we unveil the mystery of grace. Do you see what faith actually is? This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to snapshot in your mind. This is the picture of clue number one. Faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so many years ago, you called the Apostle Paul to teach the Ephesians about the mystery of grace. And now, in a very similar way, you've called me to teach the Las Vegans about the same mystery. And I pray that over these next four weeks, these clues would resonate and they would stick in our minds. For your glory and honor, we ask these things and pray. Amen.